0: Why should anyone care about their data? We download apps, browse websites, type numbers into various machines all throughout the day. We have our cars tracked while driving on roads and highways. We have our bodies tracked and tallied when we enter a hospital. Every moment, every movement, a new piece of data, just waiting to be collected. We can tell stories with data. We can make predictions. And when given new data, we can change our minds. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? Well, I'll tell you what I'm blathering about. I've got information, man. New shit has come to light. In our age of AI and precision medical technologies, the right data can save life or end it. We train our AI using models and data as their source of nutrients. If the data is corrupt or missing important elements, the answers and modeling the AI will give back to us will be equally as tainted. So much like we humans strive to make sure we have good and healthy sources of food, we must also approach these human-augmenting machines with similar care. Welcome back to the Digital Cancer Twin Project podcast. Today we speak with one of the leading figures in the field of data ethics and data justice, Dr. Lana James. And we explore the problematic history and acquisition of data in the world of tech medicine. So... Where do you see injustice in current AI and medical research?
1: Unfortunately, it's woven through the entire body of the arrival of artificial intelligence in the actual clinical practice of medicine, in the machinery that's used to facilitate and drive medicine, as well as the kinds and types of research that are being prioritized. And one might say... What do I mean that it's in all of these places? How so? And what I offer is that the reality is that whatever technologies that we have in any given society, they mirror the interests of that society. And so artificial intelligence does not come in a vacuum, it builds on prior precedents. And what we know in the current construction of the world, modernity as we name it, and the markets that we have. Evolve out of a very distinct 500-year history, and that 500-year history breaks from what came before it, and so the modern world that we know of, the markets that we have, the ideas of technology, the inventors of technologies that brought us to this point, are predicated on what has happened over that time
0: period. And what are some of the particulars that you're kind of talking about? Where where do you? How would you trace this history?
1: Well, to understand what we're talking about, we must take a good look at what time offers us as evidence, right? So I'm an evidence-based person. When I say evidence, I mean, what is the actual documented facts of the matter? And so the documented facts of the matter is artificial intelligence has two narratives. It has the clean, sanitized narrative about Cornell University and you know this conference. But what that does is it seeks to erase some key moments. And that artificial intelligence as we know it in this moment, its genesis comes largely from World War II. World War II and the instrumental work that was done by Germany through the Nazis, through the regimes of forced labor labor and their experimentations, and most importantly, the technologies of war. And we know that imperial societies of the current day have gotten their ascension, their market domination through the technologies of war. And what do I mean? The very cell phones we have, these are military communication devices that have been used and given to civilian markets to expand and increase profit. Why sell them to just one military government when you can have 7 billion people potentially holding these devices? And so when it comes to medicine, artificial intelligence has no actual organic or natural relationship to medicine. It is a result of the technologies of war and then of finance and business who seeks to get optimal profit. And what we're seeing is forcing a size nine foot into a size six shoe. And so what we have is artificial intelligence trying to be wedged into and finding optimizations. So as the saying goes, it's a um, a solution looking for a problem uh, rather than a problem that has a solution. And so a lot of things that should be done by improving clinical practice, by changing modalities of treatment, by increasing authentic partnership between um, patients and the research industrial complex so that it is flattened and actually meets the needs of the people and not just markets and, you know, i.e. big pharma, just driving more technology then obscure those opportunities and possibilities and bypasses what could be a new age of how we go forward in the world. And so artificial intelligence is something that comes from one sector – departments of defense and militarization, and then has to find value in human services, in health services, by trying to have it do things that it was not designed to do, and then bring us problems that add to our old problems. And so let's look at one example, when we look at something called race correction, uh, for people who aren't in clinical practice, and who are in clinical practice, have been taught this Practice and that what is that practice? So, race correction is a process of having a hierarchy of humans and embedding that in medicine, and then teaching that in the medical curriculum and saying, Well, and it specifically applies to black folks globally, unfortunately, and it's imputed into machines. And it says, Well, if a person is perceived as black or self reports as black, we need to correct their race so that it aligns with the perception, because this is not. Based on sound science, um, it's some people would call it science, but it fails to meet the the test. And we'll we'll do this calculation. And so for renal function or kidney function, they have an equation that is not bound up in science, but is bound in ideology that produced a pseudoscience to then, you know, make it appear to be real. And so it will artificially make a black person's kidney function look better than it is. Therefore, limiting a clinician's ability to intervene properly in the trajectory of that disease. So, in essence, someone could be on borderline kidney function or have kidney function issues. And if that's a white person, they would be flagged and given an opportunity to see a nephrologist, which is a specialist in kidney care. And if those two people are good friends and they both happen to have the same problem and that other person is black, they would be told, oh, you're fine. We'll see you in a year or six months. But when it comes to kidney function, that's all the difference. And so the one person would be given the opportunity to have, you know, life lengthening medications while they get other treatments and are often put on a transplant list if that's what is needed because the time it elapses. However, the black person would not be given that. And by the time that they do get care again, it's often urgent care and their bodies have gone through a lot of stress and often are said not to be good candidates for transplant and it's now too late because they need a window of 2 to 3 years to be able to potentially be in line for a kidney but that time has elapsed because the race correction has inaccurately said that black the black person's kidneys are functioning higher than they are and let me just be clear about what i mean by that it means that it's a false presentation and does not represent the actual clinical condition. So the original test result tells you the state. The race correction shifts it upwards, and the whole purpose of race correction is to limit and to ration healthcare away from that whom they think is not in need of it and to allow for those healthcare dollars to go to those who they believe are in need of it. And so, and this comes from the idea that black people magically have different physiological bodies when that has not been born out in science, right? And so how does that connect? Very simply, we are simply applying artificial intelligence to systems that don't work, have not worked and have many problems in them. That is more the case than less the case. the sites in which artificial intelligence does work well in medicine. And so this problem, the one I'm working on is ending race correction in healthcare, um, is a serious one because it's led to innumerable amounts of amputations, of digits, of limbs, and it's caused a high degree of premature death because rarely when you have an issue where you need race correction, do you have one, right? And so each of the race corrections builds on the other. And just to remind folks who aren't familiar, who are not clinical practitioners, every system in the body just about has a race correction factor, and that only applies to Black people. This happens in neurocognitive, this is in cardiac function, this is in musculoskeletal, this is in evaluation, and this has a distinct impact on your access to benefits referrals, and access to improvement therapies. And so across the life course and at the population level, it decreases the amount of wealth the entire population can make. Because if you've got 10 less years, that's 10 less years of earnings. And we know you don't just die just like that. There's often a period of decline. And so with artificial intelligence, what we have is computational scientists and health units simply sitting people down and saying, include the variable of race. Let's just take the entire... canon of renal journals and dump them in and make them part of our data set. And here's the problem. There is not an accurate data set available on black people because almost every single one of them, I have not found one that is not, is contaminated with race correction. Meaning we are dealing with a fictitious and imaginary black clinical body that does not exist in reality. And we have hundreds of millions of dollars being capitalized into technologies that are going into emergency rooms, into ambulances, into medical schools, and importantly, into insurance portfolios that are defining and deciding your rates. And we've already just seen decisions in the U.S. that will allow some of the largest corporations to cherry pick their patients based on AI algorithms, thereby skimming off the top. And again, race correction will affect who gets skimmed off the top. And this now becomes clearly and distinctly racialized again. So we have race correction that evolves out of the transatlantic slave trade, out of the ideology of white supremacy that gets embedded in medicine. It happens through analog medicine, has costed hundreds of thousands, and we're now in the millions of Black people's lives. And we're now scaling it into the 22nd century without a thought. And I'm sad to say I am the only person with a wonderful cadre of colleagues that I've recruited and brought in that is actually working to fix this. That's what I'm up against. And that is only one of several problems in clinical care that is moving from the analog to artificial intelligence, and it's based on all of these contaminated sets. And because business is about producing the business of AI and that's good enough, it's not the same thing as science that requires precision. These two worlds are colliding. And that collision is resulting in medicine standards being compromised to a degree and the standards of business simply optimizing the opportunity for return on investment. And so it's important to understand that anything that we have in the current moment from artificial intelligence isn't magic. It's built on the prior harms, injustices, and inequities that we had before. So artificial intelligence is not able, despite the hype and the hyperbole, to create anti discrimination, it can only increase and optimize it, and that's a fact. Unfortunately,
0: I mean, as with most AI, whether it's medical or not, these these algorithms, these programs are unique in the sense that they're only as good as the data that they're given.
1: Oh no, they're only as good as the people who created them, hmm. and so because okay. that's where the data comes from, right? Yeah. Remember, what we see as the problem, the data that we identify for the purpose of creating a solution comes out of a mind that is problem solving. And when that mind does not understand certain people as full humans, hasn't included them in the body politic for the entire time of colonization, and they've only recently in some ways been ushered in, we need to understand that the data is the byproduct of the people. Often we center on the data so as to exonerate and try to disappear and erase how racial hierarchies and white supremacies of the 17th and 18th centuries live on. But that data set is the data of racial hierarchy and the idea that white men and Europeans are the ideal and that everyone else is subhuman. And so that is the archive of data that makes up the data set. And that's the unfortunate thing, because rarely in computational science and data science and epidemiology, are you engaging with the true facts of the data that you have? And so whether I'm talking in radiology, we have another problem there. Talk about that another time. Um, And I point them to the, for instance, the Journal of Kidney Health. There's a few of them, the American one, the Canadian one. And I say, well, your data sets are contaminated because when it comes to black people, you've never actually been evaluating us. You've been evaluating what you imagine us to be. And they have to push back their chair and they're like, oh, but is it everywhere? And I'm like, I've done my homework. The fact that you don't know and you're continuing the same practice is very concerning. So it actually provides a wonderful opportunity to stop doing harm and to embed the world as it should be and to make it happen because we're actually doing a hard reset. And what's not happening in AI is a negotiation. Again, just like the last time through colonization, one group of people decided what they wanted for their own good. And then everybody else just was supposed to follow along. But it's a new day. And that's a wonderful thing about AI. People like me get to do these things in this moment. Um, But let's not get confused. We're up against multi-billionaires who just want to keep making money the way they did the last time when they traded in my ancestors and in our lands and in our wealth and uh make themselves multi-billionaires.
0: That's a surprisingly optimistic way to to end your answer, but it kind of leads I think into this next question that I'm I'm curious about. What are the steps that you're taking and you think we need to take in order to rectify this centuries-long injustice? with data and AI? Like what what are those pragmatic steps that you think need to happen? And I'm guessing that's multi-pronged approach mm-hmm. um, that's going to involve legal and uh, educational and all sorts of things. So what are the steps that we need to take in order to start correcting race correction?
1: So I'll start with a specific example of race correction and then go out from there. So um, we have something called the Canada-US... Coalition to End Race Correction in Healthcare. And um, that was formed out of my work in research and my PhD. And I, I went back to do my PhD for the purpose of having the opportunity to, to, to sit and, and work out a plan that I've been working on for some time. Because I came into race correction as a, as a younger person, wondering what this thing was on the requisition. It said, correct for African-American. And I said to the doctor, but we're in Canada. Why is it Saying to correct for African Americans, like, well, you know, it's black. And I was like, but what is it correcting for? Because there's nothing wrong with my, I'm doing air quotes here, race. Like, my melanation is not a problem. So, why would they be correcting for it? And the curious person that I am, I wanted an answer. And Central Lab was like, oh, it's a guideline thing. They sit down and they make these, dis- and so this is what it is. I'm like, but why do we have a guideline? And then, you know, I kept going down the rabbit hole and I'm like, we're all the way back to polygenesis and monogenesis. Like you literally believe the black folks have completely different physiologies, despite the fact that we have been able to have children together. You transplant our organs, you do all kinds of things. Like if we're incompatible species, like what are we saying right now? Do we really believe this? But this is the problem when history is embedded in practice is that we forget it's a history and it's not actually a material scientific fact. And so to address race correction, there's a three-pronged approach. De-adoption, which is in clinical practice and in medicine, and it also applies to other areas, but specifically in, in medicine and healthcare more generally. When you have a practice that is either proven no longer to be efficacious, has been proven to be harmful, or shows no benefit, you are to de-adopt, to terminate, to cease to use that practice. And it is to either be ceased and not picked up, or a better practice has to be identified. And so de-adoption has not had its full day in medicine, because medicine has been on the adventure of invention and innovating and bringing new things. They're not very good at stopping the things that don't work. And so de-adoption is an area of science that is going through its its growth and its development right now in terms of its methodologies and, and getting better. Um, because as we all know, um, it's difficult in medicine to move practices from bench to bedside. And that's because you have to let go of some things to start new things. And so if we want justice, I need people to stop doing the things that harm long before we start doing the things that help. Because the processes involved in the things that harm are quite elaborate, multi-layered, multi-leveled and complex. And so you got to take them out as you bring in new practices. And so the first step is de-adoption, right? And, and that has a set of steps in it. I won't get into them all here, but one, we'll talk about it in, another day. And then the second part of that is quality improvement or QI and QA and quality assurance, because this is actually an issue about quality. Which is why when people are like, oh, is this EDI or DEI? I'm like, you know, that's really lovely stuff. But I'm actually a scientist that's doing really practical, meaningful work. And I totally respect my colleagues in EDI and DEI. But one of the things that's very difficult is providing material change in those sectors. Because often they're vague. And my work is very specific as an intervention scientist. And so it's about improving the quality of clinical care clinical practice and clinical education, because you're taught this, you're actually taught race correction in medical school. And we've had a win. Um, my wonderful colleague, Dr. Andrew Serup, um, Rep, sorry, and Dr. Graves um, have done amazing work. Um, and one of the great things that's happening is the pathology textbook used in the majority of medical schools is being changed to remove a lot of race medicine. And most importantly, the US has begun to delete the questions out of the exam that would have students learning these practices as if they are valid. So those shifts are going on. Unfortunately, in Canada, while we like to suggest that Canada has a great health system, and it does in some ways, right? It does. We won't take that away. It's done its best job to not keep up with the changes that have been made to end race correction in the peer-reviewed clinical journals. For instance, I had the fortune and to a degree a misfortune of sitting on the Canadian nephrology task force, there was no methods implored. There was no terms of reference. And despite repeated requests to follow a proper process, I've written guidelines, um, the chair, um, Dr. Tangery, just felt like he could just wing it. And um, my colleague and a partner in uh, Ending Race Correction is Dr. Pat Ocampo who is a world-renowned and respected scientist um, and Canada Research Chair in Intervention Science. She also called for a declaration of conflict, terms of reference. Are we going to have RAs? How are we going to grade the evidence? And instead, they decided to make one of the most important changes in renal care, kidney care, for Black people in well over 50 years, some would argue almost 100 years, to address it through a commentary. And so again, it's the substandard short shrift. And, you know, for several months, we tarried on that committee. Um, and But I'm not surprised because people have to remember that it's very prosperous for race correction to happen. It puts a lot of organs into circulation. It makes a lot of billables when patients have to keep coming back to get amputated. And it's the reason why anti-black racism continues to flourish it is a multi-billion dollar business at the end of the day and so that's an example of why it's important to have experts in a multi-disciplinary multi-level intervention science team and not clinicians that may have conflicts of interest, may have ideologies that are being put ahead of the importance of meaningful, well-articulated science and methods. And I I bring up that example because it was very difficult for me to be on that committee, to have a chair. And um, there were uh, uh, some of the committee members who were very thoughtful, very thoughtful, and, you know, spoke to me outside of the task force and said, you know, I'm you know, so sorry that this is happening. Um, but luckily, we have champions in healthcare, and we have people that have great integrity that are physicians. Um, and so it's not all, you know, lost. And so those are the folks we're working with to make sure that Canada has the proper recommendations. Because the recommendations out of that task force were so poor because they're based on no evidence. Um, the chair refused to look at any of the evidence It's my PhD work, so I have all the evidence. I've done all the work and all the legwork. And so we'll be writing a a proper article that reflects the proper guidelines, procedures that have been set out by international committees of medicine, for instance, um, and others. And the reason I bring up that example is because in order to remove the practice of race correction, you need to do de-adoption. You have to do quality assurance and quality improvement the nephrology task force did not seem to want to understand that. And then the third component is implementation science. So implementation science is the process of implementing and seeing what happens in the real life context. So whether you're in the emergency room, whether you're in a, uh, Clinical practice or a community hospital or through virtual or telemedicine, what actually happens when the person enters the room and is on the screen and the blood requisition moves down the path? In implementation science, we work out those kinks at the site and across systems and we make sure that they work and we attend to things like workflow because you can't add more to a health system that's barely chugging along right now uh, due to the strain it's under. So we we have to think creatively, innovatively and across health disciplines. So this isn't just about medicine. It's about nursing. It's about pharmacology. It's about physician assistance, It's about administration. It's about EMR management. It's about the procurement of the technologies because, oh yeah, here's the kicker folks. Race medicine is embedded in machines at the site. And in some instances it's done by the clinician. It's then embedded into your EMR without your knowledge or consent. So that's the other big problem because race medicine is life altering it it has a serious implication for your treatment plan and the practice of physicians by their college requires that when you're making a decision that will affect a patient's quality and trajectory of life you have to confer with them and i want to point out no black people are conferred with when this happens most don't even know it's happening they just know they're not getting better And they're doing everything the doctor says, but they're still ending up in emergency. They're still ending up with amputations and they're still ending up with a shortened life and they're not getting on transplant lists and they're not getting a shot. And it's a very devastating thing when you're trying to do everything the doctor says and you're just going down and, and, and you have no way out. And it's predicated because there's never just one race correction. It compounds. There's only one body that you have, but you might have a cardiologist and a renal doctor and an orthopedic and a psychiatrist because those medications then give you depression and that's there's race correction and all of that. Um, and some of it will be practiced by some physicians and not by others, and it will then do a whole different set of things. And so When you have those three steps, de-adoption, which is ending a practice that is harmful in this case, known to be harmful, and we have the evidence and it's in peer-reviewed journals where they've done analysis and it's quite frightening and damning. And then quality assurance and improvement is making sure that we're improving the quality of the patient's clinical and quality of life outcomes, as well as improving the practice of the clinician, right? And remember, race correction happens more to women because women are increasingly medicalized. And it happens to people who are going to be medicalized further because they're perceived as non-able-bodied. So it then begins to stack on even more. And so we're having what we call, or what I've coined, clinician-induced health disparities. They're not just structural. It's not just because of the neighborhood and the postal code. This is something that a person can end by a clinician stopping that practice. And so we can take a whole bunch of harm off the table. And then finally, implementation science. We need to make sure it works in those settings. Because if the clinician is like, oh, and I've met many who are like, I don't want to be part of that. I didn't even realize that what it was. I thought it was good for the patient. I'm like, there's no data to support that it's good for the patient. It might be good for certain players, but it's not good for the patient. Well, so how do I stop it? I've got a small clinic or this is how things are rooted. We want to make sure that works because when something works, it gets done. If it doesn't work well, it gets thrown aside. And while we might not have race correction, we can have increased resentment towards the patient, which is not going to be a good clinical working relationship. And we have, can have things getting stuck in the lab here and there because now that we don't do this, well, what do we do with it? And so those are the three components in the application of ending race correction. And because Canada has a single payer, largely primary healthcare system, we are the perfect place uh, to do it because in the U.S., because of private healthcare, it's broken up from one side of the street to another, and so um, there's a close mirroring going on to identify uh, where we might pilot this first in the U.S. to have successes. Um, right now, we're in the process of enrollment, and it's a national project um, because the disciplines in health and healthcare providers have licensure responsibilities, and this is a part of quality clinical care, and that is to not harm the patient. So that's one example, but you can scale that, right? You can scale that because part of the adoption is this is happening to a category of people who are protected by Article 15 of the Constitution. It says that we shall not have decreased life quality and access to liberty in the Canadian Constitution due to our race, our gender, our religion or creed. But that's exactly what race correction is. It happens only because we are melanated and believed to be different because we are, quote, in the category of black, which is not, I want to repeat this, race is not a biological construct. It's a European invention, and it has no basis in science. And then there's people who will say, but what about the genetic clusters? Well, they don't map onto whether you're deeply melanated, sort of melanated, or not really melanated at all. They don't map, the science doesn't map that way. So there are folks who have my complexion whose genetic profile mirrors that of their relations and they can be indigenous, but your melanin can make you appear as a phenotype to be of the African or African diaspora. But those two things don't map onto each other properly. And so that's why it's not only harmful to use race, it's anti-scientific and anti-intellectual to use race in clinical and biomedical practice. So I just want to clarify, because some people may not have that knowledge. So I want to insert that so that we're clear, because I I, just, I see that I started off uh, assuming that listeners might know that. And so when we want to scale it, we have to understand that our constitution um, Pre-colonization and since colonization allows us not to be targeted for negative outcomes simply because we're believed to be something different than who the, who the dominant society believes is superior. And in this case, it's Euro-Canadians and Europeans that have created a system uh, through medicine and through the law to denote that black folks and other indigenous folks are less um, sophisticated, less of a human and therefore in need of different kinds of clinical care. And that's not science, right? So it's important to us to ground that. So you can scale all of that, de-adoption, quality improvement, quality assurance, and implementation science to the level of a sector and to an industry. And that's the work I'm working on, which is to scale that and refine it so we have good methods that can be tested.
0: We're, we're getting short on time mm-hmm. and I, I've still got so many questions. Um, so maybe we can try to go a little bit quicker, uh, but I want to I very much want to hear these answers. So, my next question is: you, and you were kind of touching on it there. Mm-hmm. I mean, who are who are the defenders of this? Like, who's out saying like, "Oh no, race correction is really really important. This is why. Like, this is what it does. This is why we need it." Like, what what defenses? What answers are they giving? Like, why? How? How is it still around?
1: Well, it's an interesting thing because what will often happen as it did with the Nephrology Society of Canada, is the chair knew so little and was so little concerned, Dr. Tangery with it, that he didn't even bother to read the literature on it. And race correction is as old as Western medicine in the Americas, so correction has been around for over 160 years.
0: And so it's just because it's been assumed for so long, it's in the water. People don't think it. It's like it, it's a fish in water, right? They don't think about water because they're Ex- just swimming in it. Exactly. Yeah. And
1: and it's been so normalized. But when you actually, we, we have talks, we have a series uh, of talks with one of our um, partnering institutions and and Dr. Ocampo, and we do clinical and population health rounds. And physicians and other healthcare providers are like, oh my, what? They're like... That's what that is. I thought it was based. And we're like, no, it was never based on a population health study. No, those numbers don't bear out in science because the numbers we have now, those are scientific numbers and those show definite harm and increased amputation and premature death. That's what the truth numbers show. And so who's upholding it? People who believe that there is a fundamental difference between black physiology and black people and the rest of humanity. Um, And unfortunately, some of those people are black and white and people of color. And they want to hold on to the construction of race because that's what makes sense to them. And the fact that the science doesn't bear it out is neither here or there. And that's why we call them ideologues, right? Um, But that doesn't mean we dismiss them because we need your clinical practice to improve. While you might have your ideologies, Um, that you uphold, you're required as a physician through your licensure to not cause harm and you're required to be responsive and you're required, most importantly, to have consent and they're in violation. And so most physicians are upset that I talk to, most clinical health providers, not just physicians are upset that they've been made party to this and they're very eager to end it. But there are unfortunately a group who feel that it's their right and their authority to decide whatever, it's to a physician's discretion. And I've had to explain that that's why I have something called the constitution and the law. Your discretion ends where a person's self-determination and self-sovereignty begins. And that's why we have something called consent. That's why clinicians and others must get consent because there is a boundary. And so just to be clear, this is not at the discretion of a physician. When a physician wants to make that claim, they're inviting a legal suit because the law is very clear about the boundaries between a physician's domain and the right of a person to personhood and whom and what happens to their body. And so one of the reasons the Nuremberg Code came was to address this. And I'd like to remind people especially those who have read the Nuremberg transcripts, one of the things that the German Nazis said repeatedly, and it was quite accurate to the letter, we're only continuing the work being done in the Americas by the U.S. government on African-Americans. So why are we the ones getting pinned for it? And they were very right because the twins experiments, many of the experiments that we've come to be aghast over were being produced in the United States at universities by also the U.S. government, and in Canada by our affluent, longstanding medical schools who are participating.
0: Yeah, people don't realize, I mean, there's there's historical evidence that the Nazis were actually researching how uh, the U.S. was treating the black population and experimenting on them and getting away with it as they were producing and preparing to do the same with the Jews.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And those stories are connected. And so when I talk about artificial intelligence beginning as a result of World War II, it's not a coincidence because they wanted to accelerate what they saw was a good American program yeah. and improve it and make it more efficient. Sound familiar? Artificial intelligence, biggest sell is we're going to make it more efficient so you can spend your time, you know, writing things. And, and this is where we started with the transatlantic slave trade, right? The excuse for it was, and then men of liberty... Can sit and think and do the important things of civilization while the enslaved take care of those mundane, repetitious tasks. Automated labor. Right. So artificial intelligence is, as I say, While we may have been able to slip out of the shackles of enslavement through our determination and our force of spirit and our demand for freedom that is unceasing and is yet to be fully answered because emancipation is incomplete for us as Black people, artificial intelligence is Europe's answer to ensuring that they have a permanent class of slave. But because it's no longer savory that that person should be embodied in flesh. They're just going to make them look like us, sound like us, but do all of the same things. Some of the advances in AI that have been the most astounding are in the use of artificial intelligence for sexual gratification. The first artificial intelligence brothel, of course, where's its home, but in the United States of America. Um, And Gaming and pornography and the sex work is where artificial intelligence is booming. It is, it's what gave us the temperature-based skin of artificial intelligence, the desire to have sentientness and sentiment and facial expression. All of this is to recreate an enslaved class that they can say, well, they're not sentient, so we won't have to deal with that emancipation thing or that civil rights thing, right? But what does it mean When somebody can look like they're human, talk like they're human, take up space like they're human, and be treated as a subhuman, how do we differentiate between the AI sitting among us being abused and the real among us being abused? And so what we have in medicine and in society in general is permitting the embodiment of an enslaved class through automation and saying, because it's technological and it's smooth and it's all in white and blue It's not a problem, right?
0: Okay. Uh, So, man, I just, I want to keep, I want to keep talking. I've got two more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up. So then my, my next question is this. So much of what you've talked about today, I can see being extremely enlightening for all sorts of folks, but particularly clinicians and scientists. I'm curious what about people who aren't clinicians, who aren't scientists, who aren't involved in this, who are just kind of everyday folks who just might need to be aware? What can they do about any of this?
1: Well, just to clarify, like everybody's involved in what I just talked about. Right. So the patient, they're just minding their own business They're they're trying to go to work. They're at the doctor's office because they don't feel well. Right. Um The lab tech that's taking your blood and putting it into the automated system, they've been made party to it. And this is why it's important to understand that we're simply doing recolonization and enslavement 2.0 because just like the transatlantic enslavement period, everybody was contaminated and made party to it, even those who abhorred it. How? Because the cotton you were wearing came out of the hands of the enslaved. The house that was built was built out of the, earnings and the rise of the U.S. as a principal imperial power through its extraction of slave labor. And so the real estate market came out of it. The dispossession of indigenous people came out of it. And so even if you were a person who was like, I don't want nothing to do with slavery, I'm not going to hire any enslaved people, the food you eat, the road you're on was made by slave labor. And we see that through the U.S. maintain the prison industrial complex through the 13th Amendment encourage people to learn about that. There's a movie by Ava Devany called The 13th, but I encourage you to read the uh, more in-depth works because, you know, it couldn't cover everything. Um, And we have the same system burgeoning in Canada. We've had an increase in the number of carceral institutions. We are now moving directly from where we were to amassing super prisons under our increasingly right-leaning governments. Um, And so to your question, everybody is involved in AI. Um, because I encourage you to read key texts and I can share them with you. Um, yeah, we can put them in the show notes. Yeah, that is important to see that most jobs will be automated. And what they keep forgetting to tell you is that bumpy period in the middle as different sectors get decommissioned, just like we saw the creation of the Rust Belt, the removal of manufacturing and tool and dye jobs and quote, good factory jobs. You're going to see that out of whole areas of this health sector um, because the markets, and I want to remind people, the movement of artificial intelligence into healthcare is determined and defined by the financial markets. It's not determined and defined by physicians. No patients asked for artificial intelligence. They've asked for high quality healthcare. And remember, technology can only do what you already do better. So if you're not doing it better, technology can't improve it. That's that's again, magical thinking. And as a scientist, I, I think magical thinking is great, but That's just what it is. It's magical thinking. And so only good human practice generates good technological practice. Good technological practice does not generate itself. Artificial intelligence can only reorganize what has been and recombine it in an infinite number of combinations, but it cannot give you anything new. It may be unrecognizable to the person, but it cannot be new because only humans through their human experience create new things for a human and artificial intelligence is not artificial nor is intelligent it is not human so it cannot create new things for humans to experience despite all the hyperbole and the overselling and the marketing just like we had with the tech bubble we're in the next one with the ai um so to your point everyday people pay attention if they come to your city council and they want to automate it, ask why, ask who, who's making the money, why would they do that? Because what that means is the jobs, those good jobs that had benefits, that where you went to the office to pay your taxes, those are gone. So that's your job. That's your wife's job. People say, well, you know, things change. Well, here's the thing. There's nothing replacing it because automation gives rise to more automation. So we're in the period where artificial intelligence, which is not artificial nor intelligent, is producing code for its own likeness. So artificial intelligence is making code for artificial intelligence. So there you go, programmer, you're out of job. And so is that a problem? I think it is when we haven't figured out how people are going to make their daily bread. How are you going to pay your rent and your mortgage? If the thing you went to university for and accrued loans for and you've come to master, your career only lasts five to six years until artificial intelligence arrives and your loans aren't paid for. How does that work at the bank? And so everybody's involved because again, the presence of artificial intelligence in medicine is just another area to which it's migrating. That is tied to banking because the whole point of artificial intelligence is ubiquity. And what does ubiquity mean? It means the connection of everything so that automation can happen in real time as fast as possible. Let me give you an example. You go in for a clinical procedure that's not covered by government insurance. Your insurance provider needs to know in real time. It's going to connect to all of your data points, how much you're walking, how much you're driving, what you've been purchasing, what's in your, you know, um, Internet of Everything fridge. And it's going to be like, hmm, this dude not leading the healthiest lifestyle. So your insurance rates are going to be 20 percent higher and you're going to be put on this plate on the wait list. This has already happened in the United States. And so your future has been foreclosed because things that are structural in nature, what's in your fridge is based on what you make. How much you walk is based on the house you can afford. Living in a walkable neighborhood in the West is tied to your affluence. Suburbs have much larger blocks and less walkability. So all of this is predicated on where business wants to do business. So if Google comes to your town or any of the big six, I'm not going to single them out because, you know, there's so many startups vying to be that guy or that gal or that person. Um and they come to your town, they inflate real estate value on average by $200,000 within two to four years. Remember that job you just lost because there's no one, you, your partner, you, you can't work in your city because the jobs are automated. So this is everybody's problem. So you got to ask questions. And those self checkouts, yo, ask questions. I don't use them. I refuse to. I will have somebody assist me. Why? Because you should be able to have a job that doesn't require an MBA, a PhD or a startup company. Like that's not a thing. So if you get rid of all of those jobs, where do those people work? And might they need to go? Probably. They were only created for capitalism because you colonized and took things that didn't belong to you. We were making a fine living before this showed up. We were the wealthiest people in the world. Um, so we're just returning to what indigenous people were doing before Europeans showed up. A life of work that is connected to your kin and your place of belonging. But that's going to be a bumpy ride because you spend 500 years killing, murdering, and emptying the libraries of knowledge and understanding. And so now we have to come back to a way of knowing and understanding that many have not really had an intimate relationship with. That's going to take time. And we don't need every human in the environment to be collateral damage. So that self-checkout, write your dollarama. Write your local Walmart. Tell them you don't want it. Tell them you want good wages with good jobs. And it needs to be negotiated. Because for those who went through the decommissioning of the factories, the tool and die industry, the steel industry, they'll tell you they have ghost towns. They got houses that aren't worth what they should be. They've got challenges that just aren't fair. And that's because no one negotiated. Big business did. And big business doesn't do things that work for all of us. But if we hold them to account, because we've done, been through this before. I'm talking about the Rust Belt because it was preceded by the unseating of Indigenous people on their land who didn't have prisons, who didn't have hunger problems, who didn't have polluted streamways, and who had equity. And we can go back to that, but we need to negotiate it. So everyday people, you're in it whether you know it or not. What you need to do is push back and let people know. I'm a player at this table, and this is my life, and this is our world, and 12 of the richest people in the world are not going to define that. We are collectively, and that is supposed to be part of the democratic story. But we know when the democratic story was authored. while well, my ancestors of the continent and the Americas were being enslaved they were inventing the ideas of liberty on the backs of enslaved people from Kant to the rest of them. So we've had these contradictions since contact with Europeans, and this is a time for an honest reckoning. So everyday people, you're in it when you go to the gas pump and they don't let you pay inside, you're in it, right? When you buy stuff off of Amazon, who has workers' bodies breaking down because they can't move as fast as robots in 100 degree warehouses, but you keep ordering and you don't push back and you don't tell them, no, you can't come here with no taxes. Because let me tell you, none of those tech corporations are paying the taxes that you're paying. So we have lots of mechanisms, but they want to convince us that we ain't got nothing. But we have everything and we have to use it. So, everyday people, buck stops here.
0: Okay. And then I think my last question will be to kind of tie it up and bring it back to this project. Mm -hmm. How do you see any or all of this playing out with the digital cancer twin?
1: Well, it's that wonderful chicken and the egg, right? (laughs) So, um, one of the things about modern society is it's highly toxic. And so cancer proliferates, but we don't talk about it as a pandemic, but it has reached pandemic proportions. When we were kids, cancer was something that you heard about and it was usually somebody who was older. Now, pediatric cancers are out the roof. People in their 40s are riddled with cancer in their 50s, and that's because we're exposed to a whole host of things um, that aren't really part of our universe other than by man made choices. And those are not choices that we all get to participate in equally. And so, in trying to deal with cancer and other invasive diseases, we end up collecting a lot of information MRI images, CAT scans, biopsies. Um, mapping of your interstitial spaces, um, a host. And what ends up happening is we have so many pieces of you, we can pretty much reassemble you in a digital graphic version or just from the inside out. And that produces a replica of you. And here's the kicker, folks. We've already happened in law where a real mortal person has been able to say, you know what, officer, I was not there at that time and place. And here are the people who can verify that. And they've interviewed those people. And they said, oh, but the video camera says you were. They're like, that's a blurry image. And that's actually not me because I have timestamps. And isn't it a surprise that, and again, this is why it's important to understand the context of the transatlantic, because who did this happen to? It wasn't your everyday working white guy. No, it was, it's black people consistently. Why? Because we produced free labor and The West has never been more wealthy than when we were enslaved. And they want that wealth back. Voila, artificial intelligence. And funny that it should work at the level of black life. And so this case, um, I wish I could recall the actual paper, but it will give it to you uh, after so it can be included, um, is again another precedent-setting example where human people who can give eyewitness that can document where they were at a specific time and place, which was considered the quality of evidence needed to allow you to be considered no longer a suspect of interest, failed. Why? Because they said the CCTV camera feed that's blurry has more authority than human beings. And so with a digital twin, if you know I can model your body and I can model the algorithms of your choices over the last 30 days, which is, what our technology is doing as we speak then i can predict what's kind of kind of happened feels a little minority reportish doesn't it cuz it is and so we have already cases where we've seen technology that is no human in the loop take authority over actual humans with the authority including lawyers and judges who decide in favor of the technology because it's inaccurately and erroneously to believe to be objective and non-bias. But remember what I said at the beginning, the tools and technologies only replicate the people and the data that they produce. So we know that what the computer is working from, what the data is working from is a history of white supremacy and colonization and uneven and unjust laws. And so with the digital twin, if we have you in one health system, And we have multiple players refinancializing, bundling your data and selling it like they did with subprime mortgages, which is actually what's happening. And your digital body is said to be one thing, but you and your physician say it's another thing. Well, your insurer is going to go with the objective thing and that's not the human choice. And so these precedents are really important because what the digital twin is doing Incidentally, because remember, we're in the business of me working on cancer and metastases and and time to end stage disease and identifying the best pharmacological solution so that we're not having to take you through different series of cancer treatments that are going to wear down your body until we find the right one. So it's a noble purpose, right? But the artificial intelligence problem that we have is producing a lot of collateral data. And because that data is there, business can't bear to see, you know, potential financialization opportunities lying around. And so what we're seeing is that data, that digital twin, those artifacts that are being produced, trying to find and mine value of it, right? And this is why radiology is all the rage in artificial intelligence, because if we can get the inside of you, we can financialize that too. And that brings us back, as we come to a close, to the very beginning of how we even got here, which was the financialization of the human through the transatlantic slave trade. And so we've returned to trading in the human. But, you know, they tried to make it more socially acceptable. So they just say we're trading in data. But the law says that any data generated from you belongs to you. And the work of the business and marketing sector right now is to convince you that your data is a byproduct that they actually own and to divorce that from the actual law. So that by custom, it becomes divorced. But right now we are still in the moment where we, the people, must declare not to have our rights removed from us through a practice of normalization. So right now, the major corporations that trade in our data are trying to say, well, you know, it's everybody's. No, it's not. My body belongs to me and all the artifacts that come out of it are mine. And they cannot and should not be traded anymore then my ancestors were traded and or put to genocide. And so we have to understand that all of that data, that digital twin is about the trading in human flesh. And it's just been, you know, glossed over. But slavery is still slavery, whether it's in pieces or parts, because basically you're getting sold off while wow, we're sitting here, me and you, me and you, we're getting sold off. And some people say, well, we should make money for it. no. We as people of the earth agreed that slavery is abhorrent. That's why we have anti-human trafficking laws. So why is it okay for some people to traffic? Because they can do it slick and smooth through technology. And the rest of us, if we try to, as we've seen serial killers do, chop up people and feed them to pigs so that we can continue to trade in perverseness, they go through a trial of criminality and get incarcerated why is it okay to dismember a human through a data practice, make hundreds of millions of dollars and act like it's a decent, ethical, viable economy? So as a practitioner in AI, I want to do good work and I don't want to be worried about the fact that because I'm doing work that behind my back institutions are doing things to patients, including myself that we never authorized and we gave no consent for. So The digital twin, I think we have to draw a line. We might produce one, but we should not be agreeing in the financialization and the refinancialization and the trading of human flesh. That we have already agreed through the work of my ancestors is abhorrent.
0: This was a powerful and important conversation. I thank you so much for taking the time to, to be a part of this today, and I've been excited by our work together, and I hope we get to keep working together in the future.
1: Thank you very much, and I tried to give long answers just so that I know there's a lot that's That's not out there in the world, so I tried to fill in the blanks. So um, I'll be glad to forward you any of those references so that folks Mm -hmm. can go and read up and learn what they can do. And um, we encourage you to look at the Canada-US Coalition to End Race Correction. Uh, We have a website, um, and it's just one of many ways to enter, and we invite you, all people. Um, We're focused on Black folks because those race corrections are specific, but the work that we do is much broader and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you so much. You're
0: welcome. The Digital Cancer Twin Podcast is a result of a grant distributed by the New Frontiers and Research Fund of the Tri-Councils of Canada and recorded on Queen's University campus. We want to formally acknowledge that Queen's University is situated on the unceded territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg. We are grateful to be able to live, learn, and play on these lands.